Hello, welcome to this latest podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman and my guest this week is Zoe Swan. Zoe runs the undergraduate law courses here and her innovative well-being and resilience sessions for her students are beginning to get national attention. She's been talking to me about her career, how she changed her life and how she's sharing what she's learnt with her students. I actually work within the business school and I'm responsible for leading the law programme, Law with Criminology programme and the Law with Business programme. I also teach the first year law students um, law in practice and I teach the second year students uh, law in action. And can you just whiz us through your career up to this point? Oh, that's a tall order. (laughs) (laughs) A whistle-stop tour. I suppose let's focus probably a bit more on my um, education, I suppose. So um, I didn't actually go to university classically as um, as most people do so my journey into law is is quite actually quite alternative i um i got into studying law after working in um corporate in corporate hr where i was running um like corporate training programs for senior managers and things like that and i had some personal experience in in um, in my life that kind of opened my eyes to the role of law and how it operates and how if you have some knowledge about the legal system, knowledge can actually be very powerful and very useful. It kind of propelled me into exploring how I could study law. So I I studied, I came to Brighton and I actually studied at Brighton. I studied postgraduate law here. I then went on to qualify as a barrister and a member of Inner Temple and I studied at the Inns of Court School of Law. And after that process, I was having interviews for pupillage and I had a young son at the time. And I don't think I'd quite taken in what the role of being a barrister would actually be in terms of my life, impact and time. And I also um, thought about why I wanted to be a barrister and would that actually be possible for me to sort of fulfil the dream that I had knowing the role of a barrister So I kind of reflected and thought, actually, I don't really think this is going to be for me. And at the same time as that, and there were some personal reasons in there which are not as easy to share. At the same time, I had a friend that I'd studied at Brighton with who said that they were looking to recruit some um, academics to work in the law teaching team. So I um, went along, had an interview, and I started my journey in academia, working in the business school on a part-time contract teaching. But shortly after, within probably um, two years of um, starting teaching, I was nominated in the Law Teacher of the Year final. I wasn't successful in winning, but that kind of then opened my eyes to the potential impact of being a teacher, what you can achieve, um, how you can work with the law, um, using the same skill set that I'd developed when I was training to be a barrister. So then I kind of focused um, all of my energy into teaching and um, developing innovative teaching practices, including um, you know, doing research into problem-based learning, um, flipped learning, um, a range of different things which actually support students in developing a much wider skill base. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about those innovative ways of teaching 
talking wellness, well-being, education, resilience, you know, nutrition. How have you been integrating that into education? Well, I, I think the journey, there's, there's been a journey behind this. It hasn't just kind of been like, well, I'm really interested in health and well-being and, mm. and law students are really stressed as our, as our legal um, professionals. So I think we need to incorporate this work into the curriculum. It's actually, it's actually involved um, quite a few years of, of, of my holistic personal development. So um, I qualified as a health and wellness coach after studying with the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. Um, and I, I qualified in 2016. At that particular time, um, I, I call it, I was having a sabbatical at Greenwich for two years. So I worked at um, the law school at Greenwich and I ran the law programmes there. And whilst I was studying to be a health, health coach in, in my own time, I was running wellbeing sessions for the students. So I was running sessions every Wednesday where students had the opportunity to come along, meditate, practice some relaxation techniques and develop a kind of community, I think, where they felt comfortable in sharing um, issues that they may have that were impacting on them, like anxiety, that kind of stuff, and, and how to deal with it, along with managing like quite a pressurised um, sort of schedule. So that's how I kind of started extracurricularly integrating this particular topic into the curriculum. But how I got to that place was when I first started working in academia, it was quite a stressful job. I don't think you'll speak to many academics that say it's like super easy, you know, there's a lot we, we do a lot of things and when we have this time people people kind of think that we're we're on summer break but we're not we're like we're behind the scenes squirreling away and we're working or doing research or preparing you know our teaching for like next year or we're in exam boards and things like that so there's a lot to be doing and when you're new to academia it's quite a skill to be able to balance having a healthy life as well as coming in and, and working and being able to do everything. And if when you have contact with particularly first-year students who go out and they're partying a lot and they're drinking, they kind of tend to get fresh as flu. So as academics, if you're new to academia, you also tend to pick this up. So you've got, coupled with the pressure, you've got maintaining like how you can stay well. And um, initially when I was uh, actually actually starting teaching, I found it tough. And what I needed to do was find some strategies that would help me stay well and have a strong immune system. So I started going to, um, I started going on meditation courses at the Brighton Buddhist Centre. Was this completely new at the time as well? Had you done something like that no, before? No, I hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't done anything like it at all. I just, I started thinking, I'm very open-minded, I'm holistic. Mm. I've always enjoyed yoga, so I've practised yoga since... Um, I was young with my mum and dad as, as part of a family. We, you know, we did yoga together, and I'd, I'd read a lot about meditation. And I think this was—I think we could be going back about ten, twelve years now. And I was using an app um, to meditate daily, and I wasn't actually sticking to it consistently. So I thought it would be really useful to go and explore some techniques. So I did a couple of courses at the Buddhist Centre, and I decided that, in terms of using it as a strategy it would have to be something that I made a non-negotiable part of my day so I introduced that after the first month my husband who I hadn't really discussed it with that much said what are you doing I can really tell that you're like you're doing something different what what, what is it what are you doing like a change in behavior yeah I was right. I was I found okay. it much easier to mm. just observe um, rather than you know 
feel like I needed to say things. I, I, I found it much easier to not to have to say things all of the time if I was angry or cross or stuff like that. So it really gave me like kind of a tool that I could see had some impact. So that's how the interest in meditation kind of evolved like over quite a long period of time. And I also then went on a course or two to show me how to actually encourage other people to meditate and use techniques so then I started including it extracurricularly so I could see um, I had feedback and testimonials from the students that they found it really useful they enjoyed it um, I started incorporating things like sniffing essential oils in there as part of the practice which I know sounds quite nutty but actually there's lots of science behind using oils and how they link to our limbic system to help us access emotions and feel calm or feel happy so that kind of then evolved as part of this extracurricular practice I then came back to um, Brighton and I could see um, in this particularly now reflecting in the years that I've been teaching law students have a kind of predisposition to being anxious or stressed they're studying a hard academic program with a lot of requirements so there's this natural disposition where they're kind of you know don't know how to manage my time I'm always feeling stressed and, and I would I would feel this and I also felt that when I when I was at Greenwich with the students there and so in terms of starting to incorporate the work in the curriculum I, I again started using extracurricular activities so that people could get familiar with it and started like thinking okay you know I can come along I can um, see what this meditation is like and I evolved that to more of a more of a workshop process so I'd called it something called like aroma chillax so the students would come along um, and staff staff have also come along too we will start off sniffing some oils seeing how they impact how they make you feel um, then we do some breathwork techniques um, so that students can see and staff can see how they're actually breathing and how to get, you know, like actual oxygen into, you know, their, um, their deeper abdomen so that they can start to learn how to activate their parasympathetic nerve system. So we do that. Then we would do some self-massage techniques to relieve stress in the body. And then we would end with me doing a guided meditation with some some more oils and aroma and I think the feedback that I've had from that in terms of how it was successful for students and the impact that they kind of vocalized it started getting me thinking about how I could start working with incorporating that in the curriculum not as an extracurricular skill but actually recognizing that students need to be supported at university in terms of developing a whole holistic set of skills it's not about them just coming here to study it's about us actually recognizing that they have um, a heavy workload and what can we do to support them with that I think my mission is actually understanding how I can incorporate that in the curriculum which I've started to do I've incorporated some well-being and resilience work into the first year that's kind of taken the shape of um, two lecture sessions where the students have had some actual taught content on understanding what resilience is. So really unpicking what that word is, what does it mean to them, what does it mean to them in the context of studying law and, and also their well-being, their, um, the environment that they're studying in, how it makes them feel, the volume of work what kind of skills that they need to have to be able to respond to those pressures and demands in terms of workload, life balance, 
a lot of our students work um, as well as coming into university to study. It's also students have caring responsibilities or parents. So they're, they're actually juggling quite a lot in their lives. And, and I think it's the lecture I aim to get them to understand the context for resilience in terms of being students and in terms of becoming practitioners in the real world. And I think it is potentially taken for granted that people know how to look after themselves and keep themselves feeling well. But from my experience, that's not necessarily the case. I think the majority of people that I speak to um, experience stress. It's more common now for people to experience anxiety. And it's also something that is becoming more common for people to talk about. So I think in terms of being progressive with regard to legal education, having looked at the context that is unfolding in, in actual practice and the research that's being done there, which really evidences that lawyers are under stress, under pressure. Um, it just makes logical sense for me to start working with our law curriculum here at Brighton to introduce students to opportunities to develop these skills so that they can kind of, I think I'm like trying to coin the term, develop strategies for sustainable well-being that will be not just beneficial for them whilst they're at university, but also beneficial for them to have adapted so that when they're in practice, they know what they need to do to look after themselves. So that lecture includes the content on resilience, well-being, some theory, some definitions, how resilience is viewed in the profession. And then it goes through um, a series of potential strategies that students can work with and explore. Because the other thing that underpins all of this topic area, Richard, is the fact that we are, as human beings, all individual and we all need different things. So just because I meditate twice a day and I do yoga first thing in the morning, I eat a plant-based diet, I might start journaling and doing some notes and maybe sniffing oils when I feel like I need a boost or I want to be uplifted. Those might not be things that necessarily work for you and your body in terms of, um, I've, I work with um something called bio-individuality so we're all different so that lecture content gets the students to really think about the strategies that they have available to them that they can start adopting or practicing or actually reviewing in their own lives what they do so do they exercise regularly how much sleep do they get um, what stops them from sleeping if they have sleep issues? What do they eat? How do they nourish themselves? Do they go to the gym regularly? Do they prefer to um, walk? How do they deal with stress? What do they do? How do they recognise that? Um, so the, the workshop that goes with that lecture really explores um, those kind of potential strategies. It also looks at how, as a course, as a community, the students can support each other in creating an environment that actually starts to recognise what makes people feel good. And that can even link down to conversations and the way that workload is perceived and how they're actually, you know, if they've got a lot of work on, what do they say about it? How does that impact on other people? Um, what do they share? How do they share it? What's their mindset like? It feels very timely because I think, well, certainly in national media, we hear a lot about um, student mental health and issues that students may feel when they come to university. A lot of students that come here are very young. They've never lived away from, mm. from home before. So it feels like it's a very... when they, If they get here and they can see that's 
that's there from the very start. That must be a huge help for them because there's lots of pressure yeah. as well when they got here. Like you said, as well, you get freshers week and then you just, you know, the traditional thing is that there'll be a lot of alcohol consumed as well and but, people will be really putting their bodies under a lot of stress mm. in so many ways. So there'll, there'll be the freshers week. There's also living away from home. There's cooking. There's managing their washing. There's getting into uni. Um, there's going shopping. There's making new friends. Uh, there's a whole range of things that can impact on, you know, the, the mind and, and the body. And, and the whole, um, my whole ethos about dealing with well-being and resilience is to take it as a, as a holistic whole approach. So as much as the students come to university and they study, they are whole human beings that are are functioning and need certain things to be able to um, support them or well, they need certain things to enable them to to be functioning in their optimum capacity so it's like you know yeah a lot of them will go out they'll drink alcohol they'll get hangovers they might not get enough sleep or they get into bad habits etc with their sleep that's kind of quite common but what do they do about that do they recognize it is there a place that they can go and talk about that and and we're really fortunate at the University of Brighton we have a really good personal tutor system so all of our students are allocated a personal tutor that they have access to and we also have within the business school a dedicated student and support guidance tutor that the students have access to they also have student services so when the students arrive at Brighton in their in induction week all of these um, services are ex- they're explained to them and I also um, start speaking about well-being and, and the, the culture that we're trying to create here in terms of um, the legal education that we're providing them with so they are they, they are exposed to that and they are then exposed to that at two certain points within their first year within that law in practice module which is a skills-based kind of module the second place that I'm introducing um, content on, on um, well-being and resilience is in our second year module, which is a law in action module. Again, it's a skills based module. And how I'm viewing this, Richard, is that um, being able to stay well and healthy and resilient is actually just like developing any other employability skill because students that are going to go on to be lawyers are going to go and work usually um, I would imagine there are some firms where it's it's not so stressed or it's not so pressure but they're going to go out and they're going to work in environments where they're having to perform at their optimum in often pressured stressed um, situations time bound and really um, activating, you know, everything that's going up, uh, going on in their brain to be able to access information, apply it, work with people. So I see um, the content developing in the second year to get them to reflect on what they do to support themselves. And that will be built in. I'm, I'm aiming to have it as part of a reflective assessment in terms of the personal skills that, that they're developing in relation to how they take care of themselves. Yeah, I mean, that would be huge for their careers when they leave university then as well as their time here do you get there are always always going to be cynics aren't there as well about it so do you get any do you get any pushback from students who seem or or maybe people that look a bit maybe are a bit skeptical at first I think that um, there are a lot of skeptics around and the skeptics are just not in the student body there are skeptics actually out in in the world generally your everyday human beings Although we live in liberal Brighton, you, you will have people that think this is all woo-woo and it's all kind of hippie, etc. Um, there are also potentially academics that think, like, you know, what's the value of this? But in terms of my response, and there are students that have said that, 
um, said the same, but then they come along to a session and they experience it and actually looking at them and listening to the feedback that they give afterwards and the testimonials that have been written, which have been particularly impactful from male students, uh, I, I can see the value and I can see that they can see the value and it's something that they, they know that they can get a benefit from, whether that benefit is instant in that moment and it's something that they recognise that they've had, an, they've had access to that, they've had experience. They're like, actually that meditation really helped me or sniffing that oil really kind of you know made me feel a bit more relaxed um taking the time to do the self-massage in the body etc or even just reviewing how they breathe and all of these um these strategies are free they don't have to go around and you know spend a lot of money students are on tight budgets but all of the strategies that I work with um, are, are things that they can go home and they can practice. They can use them if they wake up in the night or if they're stressed before an exam or an assessment or if they're struggling managing their workload. And I think that's the beauty of it. The other um, thing I would say in response, Richard, is that I've done a lot of work and research and study so that I am 100% of the belief that our health and our well-being are central to us succeeding and being happy. So I can't extract myself from the fact that I think that, it, you know, working with the students in this way is valuable. And there is a holistic way of, of actually doing that. And if I give the example of you and I, we could eat really well. Both of us could eat really, really healthy diets, but that's not going to make us healthy human beings. That's just one aspect. So we have a lot of facets as, as human beings that need to be taken into account in terms of us being holistically well and maintaining optimum wellness and also recognising when we're in situations where we need to be that more resilient. Well, how do we do that? How, how do we support ourselves when we need to stay up and pull those all-nighters to get our assessments in? What about when they're actually in practice and they've got big deals going through? You know, how do they understand what they need to, to be doing that, that can support them in that process rather than just resorting to, you know, sugar, caffeine, alcohol and drugs? Mm. Uh, it it's clearly has worked because... Or in is working because you've just been you just won an award as well, voted for by students, so the Brighton Students Union Awards for um, innovative teacher. Is that correct? It is. Correct. That must feel really that must feel really <laughs> good to yourself then, yeah. because you're seeing that appreciation from just one section of students really. But I guess the word probably gets out to their friends who they might be living with who are studying all across the university. Yeah, and and I mean, I I had no idea, Richard, that I was going to be nominated for the award or that I'd even be successful in in kind of um, winning it. In terms of um, the content going into the curriculum, that's only happened this year, so it's it's very it's very embryonic in terms of its development. But it's a, it's there as a baseline. It's something that I you know I can work with and I can develop. I also, when I run sessions for the students extracurricularly outside of what's what they've they've had in the first year, the taught sessions. Um, if I, I, and if they want to bring friends or the housemates, they're also welcome to come along. And I've had experience of students from other courses coming and explaining and ch you know chatting about how they're feeling about their study and how useful it is to be able to just come and have that kind of experience. You've seen your work nationally recognised quite recently because you had a there was an article in the in the Times about showing about what what you've been doing here, which that must feel like quite a landmark moment for you. It was, and. Um, I have to say that all kind of came about 
um, via the research that was being done um, by the Junior Lawyers Division of the Law Society. And I think they were keen to understand what, or they were, they, they, I think they spoke to um, Kayleigh Leone, who champions the, the research. And I think they were keen to understand that if there's this issue happening in practice, what's happening in terms of legal education and how students are being supported. And the wellbeing in law movement is, is, is quite far advanced in places like Australia and also in um, parts of America. But in the UK, we don't seem to be embracing it as part of the taught curriculum in that way. There are services that all universities provide that students can access, but they're not subject-based. They're not embraced as part of that taught curriculum, and I think that's what's quite quite unique about the work that I'm doing and developing with the students. So, yeah, that was a real... Yeah, that was a high. Yeah, I think. I'm interested to know what your life was like then before you started to, uh, to learn the meditation I mean you said that it was it was a little bit overwhelming I guess when you came into higher education at the first the first place but what were you what were you doing before that you said you have been doing yoga for a while but was there kind of like a was there a moment that you felt like you needed to change things then I think there was a moment and I think it was um I think it was probably maybe two years into working in that in academia and I think what I'd noticed in myself is that I wasn't actually very happy. Um, I was also repeatedly getting shingles. I'd had like three or four bouts of shingles and that's a clear sign that your immune system is, you know, not functioning really well. I'd also go through periods of picking up, usually three times a year, really severe colds, sometimes, you know, flu. And that was coupled with working in a pressurised environment. And it actually made me quite unhappy. And so I remember um, having a conversation with my son. He's actually 21 now. And I remember him saying to me, Mum, why do you do that job if you're not happy? And it was a real kind of moment for me thinking, oh my gosh, like what am I actually projecting to my son in terms of how, I, how I'm coming home, what I'm saying about work, how it's making me feel, how I'm sick. And I think that was the the landmark moment that made me think, actually, if you want to stay doing this job, and I love working with students, I'm really passionate about it, um, I thought I need to do something. I need to take responsibility for, um, you know, for my own health and for my own well-being. And that's when I started exploring different methods because I have always been healthy. I was chatting to my husband about doing this this morning and um, we were going through it and I've, I've been a vegetarian and not, not eaten meat since I was like 14. I've done yoga kind of regularly. I swim. I walk my dog. So I'm kind of healthy. But that's just one part, part of being healthy. I think healthy also comes from having a healthy mind and how we speak to ourselves and how we speak to others. So for me, mindset is really important. And um, that was also something that I really had to work on in terms of shifting how I perceived challenges and, and opportunities. And I think that's, that's something that's really um, fundamental in terms of how we stay well, because actually it's always really... It's quite easy to blame other people for what's happening in in life and this is I mean this is obviously very generalistic in terms of you know what I'm sharing but there's a lot that we can actually do ourselves to take responsibility to, for how we respond how we show up and how we support ourselves so it's just become bigger and bigger it's just grown and at the moment I'm probably 
I think three quarters of the way through finishing my Kundalini yoga teacher training. I'm a student teacher now and I qualify in September. And um, that yoga training has elevated my understanding of mindset and the role of meditation, mantra and chanting and the impact that that can actually have on the body. So it's just it's just ever evolving, I think, Richard. That, that's quite in, um, inspiring, really, the way that you... Most people wouldn't look at being a couple of years into a job without saying it's the job's fault and I need to find something else then rather than changing your life to fit the job properly so that you can be happy. Most people don't do that. I just find that a job. But do you, do you think also part of the help with that for you is that you'd, you've gone a different direction already. You'd been a barrister and then you came into higher education. So you wanted to make higher education work or academia work? I think what it was for me is that I really loved so many aspects of my job. I really enjoyed the students, I enjoyed teaching and I enjoyed working with them. Um, what I found more challenging was the um, intellectual environment that, that I worked in and the expectations and the, the pressures that are there in terms of um, you know, doing research, working with colleagues, um, leading a course... Um, interaction with students and there's a there's a I think there's a lot of pressure when you first come into academia and it's particularly um, noticeable around the start of term the first term leading up to Christmas you you know you're kind of you're always on the go you're busy and when you're when you're actually teaching when I when I started teaching I was teaching a lot of subjects that I hadn't actually studied so I had a lot of time preparing and working and it, it seemed kind of relentless so I was like I had to look and see what I could do and what I could change and what I had the ability to be changing in my life that would help me to start feeling better about things and I think what, what I think is really interesting about what you've said is there is also um, an arena at the moment um, in terms of academia and also um, law firms and, and you know potentially you know other other professions where well-being and resilience training is being you know is being provided to staff and that's not necessarily the answer. For people, and I'm not sure of what the answer is because I've I've spent a lot of time. You can tell in terms of the conversation we're having and what you've said in, with regard to how I've evolved as a as an individual and a, and a human being. Um, I think individuals have to kind of take an element of responsibility for themselves. So it doesn't really matter how many courses that employers provide or or what's there for um, staff to go on. That that can impact, but there has to be a a mindset shift I think from the individual to start perceiving things in different ways because I think once you start to be able to influence how you respond to situations that's when you really are empowered to impact your well-being because you have a choice and we all have choices about how we respond to situations and even if it's we're stressed we're pressured we still do have a choice about about how we respond if anyone is feeling anyone listening to this is feeling the sort of the same way that basically you were saying you felt before you started to take the meditation classes what would you advise people did first is it because everyone's different so would it be just to sort of find some sort of release that works for them how would you what sort of process would you say to, to have a, a you know just to improve your general well-being I think, you know, 
what I would encourage um, people or individuals to do is really maybe take some time to reflect on how they're living their life, what they're doing, um, when they're doing it. Uh, like, you know, if they're going out a lot, if they're drinking a lot of alcohol, if they're not eating well, if they're not taking care of themselves, you know, who do they spend most of their time with? Uh, what are those people like? Do they support them? Are they positive? Are they encouraging? Um, how do they look after their physical fitness? Do they go to a gym? Do they swim? What do they like to do? Do they like to go for a fast walk? Have they got a dog they can walk or something like that? Um, and what do they do specifically to manage stress? So that's something I think I would, you know, I'd recommend. So what, what, if you're stressed or you're suffering from anxiety, what can you do? And obviously I've got a, a, a qualification as a health coach. So for me, things go much, much deeper. It's a holistic way of working. And sometimes anxiety can be triggered. Um, well, it, it, it can exacerbate on things like your gut health. And if your gut health, where you're stressed and you're producing too much cortisol all of the time, um, then maybe not sleeping enough, your whole well-being is, is going to kind of be out of sync. So I would look at the basics that are happening in life try and identify what the stresses are how you can respond to them and then think about what techniques you can um, explore that suit you to actually mitigate stress because there's so much research on breath work meditation and yoga in terms of how that can impact on not just the body but also the brain and the mind in terms of how it responds and and how it enables the human being to kind of like I said at the beginning observe things rather than feel that you need to engage or you know get get angry and I think you know there could be basics in there like keeping a journal I think starting a daily gratitude practice for anyone that's feeling low or sad really like each morning or before you go to bed at night think about three to five good things that have happened in that day it could even be just really simple things like I got out of bed I made some breakfast I went and chatted to some friends or it could be things like you know I managed to get to the gym and really enjoyed like a workout or um, I got a good mark in my assessment or I bought myself some flowers or my mum came to visit there's loads of things and I think when people get into um, a negative mindset it's quite hard to shift out of that because not only are you negative, but you then start to attract negativity from other people and it kind of multiplies and then it's hard to break out of that, that mindset and that mindset feeds the anxiety and it feeds the stress. So focusing on things that are good in life can really help break that pattern, I think. One of the other things is that you've been very vocal about what giving up alcohol has done for your life but also other people have been getting in touch with you as well to talk about that. Yeah, I, um, I made a decision, Richard, on the 4th of December 2017 to give up alcohol for 40 days. And it was a really interesting experiment because, number one, everyone was really shocked. Like, how can you be doing that? We've got Christmas and we've got New Year. And I was known amongst my friends and in, in my family as someone that really did kind of like a drink. I will say, not an alcoholic, but it was a regular part of, of my, you know, day-to-day, week living, drinking alcohol. And there were certain types of alcohol that I used to like to drink for certain occasions, like champagne or gin and tonic or whatever. And anyway, I made the decision to um, to stop drinking, just to try it for the 40 days. And um, I can't say the 40 days was impactful, 
but it was enough to keep me going and so it's now been I don't know I usually do like a date tracker so I'm probably nearing maybe 600 days of of being alcohol free in my life and I think the key benefits that I have had from it is that well in terms that I've noticed personally uh, a reduction in anxiety Um, alcohol is known as something that can um, exacerbate your anxiety it's something that Matt Haig also refers to in his book lots of people have um, written commentary about the impact of you know alcohol and drinking on mental health depression etc so I've really noticed that impact also the clarity of mind like being able to you know be really kind of switched in and on the ball like most of the time if if you have a few drinks the night before and you don't sleep well you get up the next day and it, it kind of takes you a while to you know you know get into the, you might not even get into that space that day and um you know a reduction in stuff like you know brain fog things like that where you're having those kind of like hazy I think that the moments of after alcohol um, and it has been interesting I've been very um, open about charting my journey on social media students have reached out to me to um, say I love what you're doing and what you're saying it's really inspiring please keep doing it I've also had people reach out to me that have actually studied law that have had addictions um, with alcohol and said it's been really helpful and they've shared you know their their journey as well and I think it's just something that's uh, it's it's something that I've become quite passionate about. It also forms part of my um, yogic uh, teaching. We have an, an oath where we don't drink caffeine, alcohol, or take drugs, um, or eat um, meat. So it's it's kind of just evolved as well to fit in with, with in, to fit in with my yogic training. But I feel it's really important for students at university to be able to have access to a role model that is actually role modelling that as a lifestyle because I think it's very easy for alcohol and its consumption to be normalised as part of everyday living, particularly when the first years come to uni and they're exposed to Freshers' Week and things like that. Alcohol is accessible, it's cheap, um, but there's also lots of consequences to drinking alcohol in, in, that, in that way. So for me, I'm, I'm really more about perhaps um, creating events that aren't evolving or aren't revolving around alcohol so in our welcome week we have um, a session where our new students meet their law guardians and that session last year was launched over a um, Brighton Business School bake-off so the current students baked cakes for the new students and we had tea we had cakes and the students got to meet each other whereas the norm for kind of events that evolve in law particularly in profession revolve around alcohol wine cheese networking so I'm, I'm kind of passionate about wanting to blaze that trail in terms of showing students that not everything has to revolve around alcohol. And I think actually research is showing now that students are less inclined to be drinking. I think there's maybe like 25-30% of younger adults not having alcohol now. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. And people continually ask me, will you ever drink again? And I think the further that I've got into this um living life without alcohol the more I know that you know I won't drink again I just I can't I can't see it happening so that I think that's you know that's quite a lot for my you know for my family to take on board my wider family you know they don't have a real issue with it but I think my husband um, often jokes with me you're not the woman I married <laughs> and it's like I would I never prepared I never prepared myself to be like so I'm going to not drink alcohol anymore. I mean, I think 
people would just literally be falling over in shock. But then it started evolving and whatever, and now it's just normal. Like, does your husband drink as well? Yeah, he does. Yeah, he still. It was in the beginning when I when I when I first stopped drinking. What I'd do is he'd he'd sit at the table and he'd have his wine. There was no, he he didn't stop doing it at all because he was like, look, this is your journey. It's not mine. I want to still drink alcohol. And um, in the beginning, when it's it's tough in the beginning, you have associations with certain types of food, certain days of the week, certain people that you're around. I used to lean over and say, can I sniff your wine? <laughs> and he would look and I'd just go, mm, OK, that's fine. And then I'd be, but now I don't, you know, I don't even do that. So my drink of choice, if I go out and I'm somewhere like, you know, that's a bit hip like Brighton or places in London, I'll just have a kombucha or something or a seed lip. There's loads of botanical drinks that you can have now that are becoming more understood in the market. And I think, again, somewhere like America is is more advanced than, than us over here. I'd, I'd love to see... Um, Brighton and places like London having sober bars that aren't just pop-up ones where you can go in or the coffee culture extending into the evening where you can go out and have a you know a pot of mint tea or hot chocolate or coffee in the evening rather than you know that kind of stops at six or seven o'clock usually doesn't it so yeah we'll see maybe I'll open a sober bar with a yoga studio out the back Richard. <laughs> so we finish each podcast with five fire questions really I guess outside of your work so the first one would be what advice would you give to your younger self to try not to control outcomes as much to be more flexible to go with the flow good answer okay can you pick a favorite place in Sussex it's got it's really got to be Brighton (laughs) I love going into Brighton on a Saturday grabbing a vegan hot chocolate just hanging around in the north lanes if I had to have a second place it would be Lewis Great. Uh, describe your perfect weekend. Perfect weekend would be spent somewhere down in Cornwall with my beagle dogs walking on the beach and my husband and son who's a surfer. Cool. Uh, what are you currently reading, watching and or listening to? You don't need to pick all three, but you can. I have got two books with me um, here and one of them is a mindset book by um, Carol Dweck. And it's called Changing the Way You Think to Fulfill Your Potential. And the other book I really love um, is by a local author, Matt Haig, and that's Notes on a Nervous Planet. I've just finished watching um, the Heal documentary on Netflix, which I loved. It's all about how the emotional emotions link on link into your um, your body and your well-being. And I just finished Chernobyl that's great, in terms it? of that. High, it was super high impact. I, I couldn't bring myself to watch it initially. Really? Um, yeah. And then I think I was reading all of the reviews and then I said, OK, we're going to have to go back and watch it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a ph- um, phenomenal documentary. Yep. Really enjoyed it. But it, it was... Oh. Yeah, the, the reviews were justified, weren't they? They were yeah. brilliant. Yeah. If you could invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? So I would have to um, invite Baroness Hale... She is the president of the Supreme Court and she's been a phenomenal influence as a women judge in the legal world, particularly in terms of um, making sure judgments reflect a wider understanding of the role of women and diversity in society. So that would be my first choice. Um, The second person I think I would invite is someone called Dr Mark Hyman and he is a functional medicine expert in America. And he, I love following his work on Twitter. He has a great podcast called The Pharmacy, um, not spelt P-H, but spelt as in farm. 
And I love the way that he looks holistically at health. So it's not just about how you feed yourself. It's about all those other facets in life in terms of how you take care of yourself. So he would be second on the list. And then the final person is is potentially probably a bit controversial. I've already met her as well. Um, she's really influenced my yogic training. And that's someone called Guru Jagat. And she's based in um, the US as well. And she's also... Um, what I would class as a yogic entrepreneur and a real um, role model for female empowerment in a very unique way. She's also um, trained by Yogi Bhajan, who does Kundalini Yoga. So it would be the three of them at my dinner table, eating a plant-based meal. (laughs) Thank you to Zoe for her time. You can follow her on Twitter. A link is in the podcast description. That's about it for this week. But if you want to make sure the next podcast drops automatically into your preferred podcast app, make sure you subscribe. We're on most providers, including iTunes and Spotify. Just search the University of Brighton. It's cheerio for now, though. Thanks for listening.